You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than the food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, I've got some good news for you. I heard a, a British politician this past week tell us that um, he believes we're on the verge, on the cusp of a decade-long global recession. Um, not seen since the 1970s, maybe even going back to the 1930s. That's, that's what we're in store for. So if you came for a pick-me-up this morning, that's the first good bit of news I've got for you. Um, start tightening your belts. Um, I went shopping the other day on Friday with, uh, Thursday with India, did the big shop, the dreaded big shop. I just went around the whole supermarket saying, how much does that cost now? Like, really? My celery is costing me 20 bucks? This is insane. It wasn't really 20 bucks, but it felt like that. And I spent the whole time going around just like with my anxiety levels rising. In a world of um, worry and anxiety, the message we get told and really the message that we tell ourselves is, uh, I will have peace when I have enough possessions. I will have security when I have enough stuff. The way to insulate myself against the uncertainties of world economics and markets forces is 
to accumulate as much as I can. I'll have peace when I have enough possessions. I'll have security when I have enough stuff. That's not just a a modern mantra. That's something that people have believed for millennia. People believe that in Jesus' day. Right now, as we sit on that mountain listening to Jesus' teaching, I think this is week 17 in the Sermon on the Mount. You're very familiar with first century Palestine by now. And as we sit here listening to Jesus, this is a message that we are telling ourselves as well. It's a very different in application. The average person in Jesus' day in Palestine was living uh, with two to three days of security at a time. So the average person would have enough money, food, resources for two to three day bursts and so you had to make sure every two to three days you renewed your resources otherwise you die. Um, So they had the same kind of pressure on them and they had the same kind of solution. If I can accumulate enough, Jesus said, if you can build bigger barns and just keep expanding your barns, then the the person says to himself or herself, "I, I will have security. I will have safety. I will have peace. The problem with this experiment that we've been running in security, the problem with that, and we've just got the results in now, okay? We've been running this for a few thousand years, just got the results in the last 50 years. And the results of this experiment are that it absolutely fails. It fails to deliver what it promises. This promise that if we get enough stuff, we will feel at peace, that anxiety and worry will leave us. This promise that really has motivated and driven human endeavor for thousands of years. It has driven, fueled world economics for thousands of years. This promise has failed us. We know that because we live in the most affluent society that has ever lived. We have more stuff than anyone else who has ever lived. And yet, how many of us are free of anxiety right now? How many many of us walk through each day without any worries? Who's going to lie to me? Anybody? No. There's a guy named Greg Easterbrook. He wrote this um, book motivated by this, the, the results of the experiment coming in, the failure of this promise to be fulfilled. He wrote a book called The, the Progress Paradox because the idea was the more that we progress, the more that we are able to sort of insulate ourselves around, um, around possessions and money and resources, the more that we are self-sufficient, the less we will be worried and anxious. And so then he wrote this book called The the progress paradox, because the paradox is it doesn't work. And in fact, the more you have, the more worried and anxious and depressed you tend to be. These are just the facts. So here's what he says. I got a, a quote from him from his book. He says, adjusting for population growth, 10 times as many people in the Western nations today, like ours, suffer from unipolar depression or unremitting bad feelings without a specific cause than did half a century ago. He's saying, compared to 50 years ago, 10 times as many people in our, in Caroline Springs today, suffer from unipolar depression. That is bad feelings with no cause. I don't know why, I'm just depressed. 
He says, Westerners have ever more of everything except happiness. <laughs> what the hell is that about? How can we have ever more of everything except happiness? Those two things are meant to go together. That was the promise. That's what we've been believing as a civilization for thousands of years. It's not just a paradox, it's a tragedy. We've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount that this manifesto of Jesus is like a, a way of understanding it, a key to interpreting it. There are a few different ways, but one of the ways is to see it as this, this manifesto for, for the blessed life, for the good life, for the happy life. Remember one translation of the Beatitudes is happy are the poor in spirit. So, the happy life, the flourishing life, I think is the best translation of what Jesus is getting at. The life, the human life that flourishes. That's what he's giving us a recipe for here. In these three chapters, he's saying, this is what the flourishing life looks like. And so naturally, part of this manifesto contains teaching that is designed to save us from worry and anxiety because worry and anxiety is antithetical to flourishing. So Jesus turns to this topic now of, of anxiety and he wants desperately for us to be set free, liberated, redeemed from our worry, from our anxiety, the kind of stress that just seems to be part of daily life for us as human beings. He wants to free us from all of that. I'm going to talk about that today and see Jesus, that Jesus has kind of three antidotes for anxiety, but I just need to do a little caveat here. Um, as someone who gets to have a front row seat for many in this church, for many of our struggles, and all I want to say is this, anxiety has many different causes. Sometimes people can be deeply anxious because of um, things that are far outside of their own control. For example, childhood trauma produces great anxiety. Some of us suffer from personality disorders that make anxiety a daily struggle. Jesus is not addressing those, those forms of anxiety. Jesus is addressing in this passage the kind of anxiety and worry that is produced when we become slaves to material things. When we believe the lie that if we have more stuff, we'll have more security or more peace. That's what he's speaking against here. So, let me just take us to these three different antidotes to anxiety and you see what you make of it. This is coming from the most peaceful, most happy, most flourishing human being who's ever lived. And his first antidote for anxiety is, number one, generosity. Generosity. This may not be immediately evident, but let's read verse 22 and 23. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? And if you're like me, you say, what now? What? 
This section of Jesus' sermon just seems to be like a little bit of like the scrap that he left off till the end and he was like, I'll just put it in there. It it seems out of place. Like we got in the the verse before, he's talking about um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we get that. That's about putting our efforts and and our, our allegiances behind that which is truly worthy, that which is truly valuable. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven rather than on earth, right? Where your treasure is, where your heart will be also. And then we get in another verse time to, to his teaching around not serving money, but rather serving God. And then in the middle, there's this strange little excursus, it seems. And I didn't really ever understand it until we came to this series. And, and I read that and I thought, Matthew is too much of a genius, Matthew really is a literary genius. He's too much of a genius just to chuck this in there like a bit of scrap. There's got to be more to this that I'm just not seeing. And it turns out there is. I mean, there always is, right? What we don't get is the imagery that Jesus is employing, which was familiar to the people of the day, first century Palestine. They got this idiom that we miss, partly because it gets lost in translation, There's wordplay and poetry in the original Greek that we don't get in our English. So the way that I tried to figure this out, and this is a little trick you can use when you get to part of the Bible and you're not sure what it means, try and find another passage in the Bible that uses similar language or a similar topic, similar theme, and see if that can interpret it for you. Scripture is its best interpreter. And the, the real, the best you can do is if you find in the same author. So in this case, Matthew. Has Matthew used this kind of language before? And it turns out he has in a really obvious way. So if you go to Matthew chapter 20, again, this isn't going to be immediately evident until we do the, the translation bit. All right. So, But listen, this is Jesus telling a parable about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the ruler of a kingdom has, uh, uh, or an employer in effect, has decided he's going to pay the same wages to the guys who turned up at the beginning of the day and did a full day's work as he is to the guys who turned up in the last minute and did a a small amount of work. And the the point of the parable is that uh, God generously rewards all of his children, whether they have served him out of, from out of the womb or whether they come to him on his deathbed, right? That he, they are rewarded with eternal life. Now, in the parable, the workers obviously aren't too stoked about this. The ones who have been there all day figure they should get more than the ones who turned up late. So he, here's, here's what, what happens. The, the master replied to this guy who's upset, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? I'm paying you what we agreed. Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do with what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? That's the key. Are you jealous because I'm generous? And some of you will have a note in the bottom of your Bible where it says that are you jealous is literally, um, uh, do you have an evil eye? Is your eye evil because I'm good? Or, or even more wordplay, do you have an evil eye because I have a good eye? Are you being jealous because I'm generous? And that's the key. 
to understanding this sort of image that Jesus uses of the eye. In the first century, the one with the evil eye was not someone scowling you at the traffic lights because you cut them off, right? The one with the evil eye is the stingy person. The one with an evil eye is someone who withholds and hoards and keeps to himself. The one with the healthy eye, the generous eye, I think the best translation is the generous eye, is the one who is free with what he has, which is exactly what the parable is about. So when Jesus says this, it's not some scrap that was left on the floor, it is an illustration. It's a little parable within the sermon of of generosity and stinginess, which is linked to his teaching on anxiety because generosity, it turns out, is an antidote for anxiety. If you want to be free from the stress and strain that comes with worrying about whether you've got enough money to pay for your lettuce this week, if you want to be free of that, then give it away. That's the paradoxical promise. That's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Generous people are less stressed than stingy ones. You would have known this if you've ever been to a a country that is riddled with poverty. I remember traveling through southern Africa and we came across the most generous people I've ever met in my life. And they were living in paper mache huts. What's that about? Having more stuff is meant to make us less anxious and therefore presumably more generous, more free, more liberated. And yet the exact opposite is true. So Jesus says, if your eye is healthy, best translation, if your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light. The antidote for anxiety. But if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. You'll be overwhelmed with stress, anxiety, worry. The evil eye looks out on the world and sees lack of resources. The response to that is to hoard as much as I can against the coming winter. The healthy eye, the generous eye, looks out at the world and sees God's abundance, his provision, and so sees ample opportunities to share what he has with others. The first antidote to anxiety is generosity. You see in the New Testament church, in the early church, even in the midst of this this kind of wrestling with this idea that if I just have more, then I will be more whole, you have Paul encouraging the church in Ephesus. He's, He's encouraging, well, Timothy, who is the elder in Ephesus, he's encouraging him to to teach specifically the rich people and to warn them against believing this lie. All right, so let me just read you what he says and see if this makes sense of what we've been saying. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be what? Generous 
and willing to share. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. He'd been reading the Sermon on the Mount. That instruction to the rich is an instruction to everyone in this building. All of us, comparatively speaking, relatively speaking, are filthy rich. Number one, generosity. Number two, devotion. Devotion. Let me read verse 24. No one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The second antidote for anxiety is devotion. Have you ever met a contented person? Someone who's got peace of mind. You'll know it if you have. They're, rare. They're like unicorns. You see them and you're like, whoa, it's amazing. A truly contented person. The really contented people that I know and have met throughout my life, and again, there aren't many, but they tend to be the most mature Christians I know. They're the ones who, like Paul says in Philippians, have learned the secret of contentment. They've come to understand that life is full of ups and downs, that the economy is full of ups and downs, and therefore, rather than putting their trust in fleeting securities, they put their trust in God, and they live fully out of their convictions. Yeah, that's it. They live fully out of their convictions. That's what a contented person does. They know who they are. They know whose they are. They know what their priorities should be and they pursue them. They are wholehearted, single-minded. That's what Jesus has been calling us to. Remember all through the Sermon on the Mount, he uses this language of wholeness. Single-minded, whole body whole heart devotion to God. That's what produces contentment. There's this um, business guru, entrepreneur guy, he's dead now, but he was listed by the Times, uh, by um, Time magazine as like one of the most 25, 25 most influential people of the century or whatever. His name's Stephen Covey. You might have read, your, your business might have got you to read his book about whatever it was how to be an effective, productive person. Anyway, he hit on something when he said this. Stephen Covey, peace of mind comes when your life is in harmony with true principles and values and in no other way. In, as far as he was concerned, after living a life full in finance and business and entrepreneurialism and leadership, what he believed by the end was the only way to live with peace of mind is not to get on Forbes' rich list. But rather, and the only way, is to live in harmony with principles and values that you hold. Jesus says, 
single-minded, wholehearted devotion to God alone is the path to peace. It is the antidote to anxiety. Human flourishing comes about when you know who you serve. And then you live each day serving that thing, whatever it is that you serve. His point is you need to choose. Choose today who it is that you will serve. I think, and I've said this to you before, the most unhappy people, the most depressed, the most anxious people on earth are Christians who are living out of sync with their convictions. They believe all of this stuff. They're true born-again believers. They believe it right down deep in their heart. They understand what it is to follow Jesus and what he's calling them to do, and then they live outside of that. They wander away from that, they rebel against that, and it produces nothing but unhappiness and anxiety. Jesus says, look, let me make it simple for you. Let me make it binary. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then everyone in this room says, you want to bet? I'm going to give it a good go. It's kind of hedging your bets, right? Yes, I'm devoted to God because I really do believe that ultimately he's in charge of the universe and he provides me with everything I need. But also, I'm just going to try my best to accumulate as much stuff as I can just to, you know, diversify my portfolio. I've I've got God and I've got all my stuff. Jesus says, no, you can't. You must be, Jesus says, to be my disciple, to live according to this manifesto of human flourishing. You must be wholehearted, single-minded. Here's, here's my kind of breakdown of what he just said. I'll try and put it in a sort of synergistic form so we can see the, this, this, this T intersection that we've come to. So I got, you guys want to run that quote? Choosing to serve money or God, the one you serve will make a servant of the other. Money, God, whatever you choose will make the other one its slave. Right, here's how it runs. Just test this logic. If you choose to serve money, you'll make God its servant too. Because money is your ultimate mission, God will be used to achieve it. This is the prosperity gospel, by the way. God exists to make me wealthy. God is the servant of money. God is the servant of me. However, on the other hand, if you choose to serve God, you'll make money his servant too. Because God's glory is your ultimate mission, money will be used to achieve it. This is the truth. Money exists for God's glory, to build his kingdom, to bring about his justice, and to establish his peace. 
That's what money is for. And so if you today choose or perhaps recommit yourself to the choice that you want to serve God, whole heart, whole body, whole mind, devoted to him, then you're suddenly going to see money in a very different way. Rather than being your master, it will become your slave. And you can put it to work for the sake of the mission. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to choose. Now, I just want to encourage you, whether you choose God or money, I think God is a much better option. Money is a... She's a... She's a fickle mistress. So I want to say, definitely choose the God option. But whether you do or not, at least make the choice. Let's stop hedging our bets. Let's stop playing both sides. Jesus says, stop it. You can't do that. So you've got generosity... You've got devotion. Third one, dependence. Now I'm going to read, just read Jesus' words to you. There's a bit of a chunk here of the passage, but it has become famous in literature for a reason. And that's because it's brilliant. All right, so just listen to this. He says, verse 25 to 32. Therefore, I tell you, if all of this is true, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more important than food and the body more important than clothing? Listen, he says, consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you worth more than they? Or aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? I meant to laugh at that point. <laughs> no. In fact, the exact opposite is true, as all of the people who have had stress-related heart attacks can attest. And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So, don't worry saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles, the pagans, the, the, the non-believers eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. We find this difficult. We find this very difficult to pra- practice, because... Like, what you need to know this morning is all the messages you've ever heard are nonsense. That's basically, that's the big idea, except this one. All of the messages that we keep getting reinforced through the thousands of ads that you see and hear every day, thousands, reinforce this idea that you need to be preoccupied and, yes, anxious about the next thing you get. 
the next possession, the next meal, the next drink, the next new shiny thing. That anxiety fuels the global economy. We need to unlearn that. It's difficult for us to hear that the antidote to anxiety is dependence because we've been told all of our lives that actually the antidote is the exact opposite. The antidote to anxiety is independence. If I can just be a fully realized individual, disconnected from needing anyone or anything, then I will have peace. Little kids are told this over and over again. Be a strong, independent woman. Be a strong, independent man. It's nonsense. Independence is not the path to peace. The exact opposite of that is. It's dependence. It's utter, day-by-day, minute-by-minute dependence on one who can actually deliver. independence doesn't even exist in the first place there is no independent person it's a myth so searching after it with all of your heart is a tragedy your search for independence requires you to be in control and you are not I think at its heart, anxiety is what fills the gap between the control that we think we should have and the control that we actually have. Is that true? There's a level of control that I think I should have to be a fully realized, post-enlightenment, independent, secular humanist. I need to be free of dependence on all things and people. I need to be an individualist. Therefore, I should have absolute control over everything. I know that the whole situation through COVID with impositions of government and liberties and all of that is very complex and nuanced, and I can see all kinds of sides of the argument with that. that. One of the big problems we had and the reason that we felt so impinged upon is because we have this myth in mind that I am fully autonomous. I have absolute control over myself. It's nonsense. And it is a sure path to anxiety. People who believe that they are absolutely independent and self-sufficient are the most stressed out people. Because they're constantly having to reach for something that they can't grasp. Anxiety is what fills the gap between the control that I think I should have and the control that I actually have. And so an antidote for anxiety is to come to the realisation that I'm not independent, that I am absolutely dependent. I have no control. Actually, the answer is not just to say, I have no control and just go and like live as a hippie and take and take you know take you become a Buddhist or something you know just empty yourself of all desire and 
practice acceptance. That's not the answer exactly. The answer, I think, is to accept that you don't have control, but to understand right down deep in your heart that your daddy does. That's the difference. I don't have control. I am not independent, but my daddy owns the universe. Do you know who the most independent people in the world are? And say this from experience, working with them in when I worked in America for a little while. The most independent people in the world are orphans. Orphans, from the very day they're born, need to take care of themselves or die. Orphans grow up very fast. I worked with a bunch of 10 and 11 year old orphans who are more mature than anyone here. Completely and utterly driven to take care of themselves because they have to, it's not their fault. Orphans are independent, but we're not orphans, friends. We're not orphans. We've been adopted into God's family. Our Father is ruling the universe and therefore the antidote to anxiety is to say I don't have control I'm not independent but daddy is then we can be liberated from worrying about drink and food and clothes and the 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 the, the base kinds of anxieties and worries of life and we can pour all of our energy and attention into things that really matter like living fully living a flourishing life in the kingdom of God that's Jesus invitation verse 33 here's what he says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness that's living fully living righteous living in accordance with God's nature and his will. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, he says. You're liberated from stressing out over the accumulation of stuff. And you can suddenly, you, you suddenly have all kinds of time and energy on your hands to invest in the kingdom of God. Daddy's taking care of things now. Yeah. Let me just finish by sharing with you just a little word of personal testimony. And this is, um, this is about... Uh, a, a conviction that Renee and I had when we got married. We came together around a shared sort of sense of wanting to minister to um, poor and oppressed people. And had, we sort of had a shared sense of conviction about the way that Christians ought to live in, um, in God's kingdom, particularly when it came to this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff we're talking about, convictions around money and possessions and... And so we decided before we got married, one of our key and core convictions was that we were not going to strive and strain to accumulate. We didn't want to have, I don't know, tons of investment properties or bank accounts or credit cards or like we just, we wanted to live simply 
and be free from that, that stress that comes with keeping up with the Joneses or accumulating a portfolio or whatever. And so the wedding text we chose for our wedding very specifically was from Hebrews chapter 13. And one of the verses there in verse 5, it says this, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, God, I will never leave you or abandon you. That meant everything to us as we tied the knot on that day. And I want to tell you, over the last 17 years of marriage, we have got just about everything wrong over and over again. And we have folded on our convictions and we have wandered away from following Jesus and we've done all kinds of things wrong. But this central conviction by God's grace has remained and I'm only telling you this for this purpose, to tell you that God has never failed on that promise. One of the most common things Renee and I say to ourselves with shock and surprise is how do we have this money how do we why are we, how are we living in this house with walls and a roof and a and carpet on the floor how do we have a car how has this happened we have not been striving for this and yet God has constantly provided for us everything like too much I'll never leave you. I'll never abandon you. Be content. The antidotes for anxiety are generosity and devotion and dependence. And for us to actually put this into practice, which is like the whole point of a sermon, Jesus' sermon and this one, is to get to the application If we're going to put this into practice, we need to forsake so much of what we have just by nature assumed to be true about the universe and our place in it. So what I'm going to do now is simply pray that if you're here this morning and you're engaged with this, I know that's probably not everyone, but if you are, if God's Spirit is speaking to you now through His Word and convicting you about how you ought to live in His kingdom, then I'm going to pray for you that that work would take root and continue. And then if you want to pray a little more through this, we're going to sing a few songs in a second and and a couple of us will be over here and we want to pray for you specifically that God's Spirit will be working this way through you. And if you want to practice generosity as an antidote for anxiety, then we're going to take up a collection in just a minute for the work of gospel ministry in this place. And so you might like to contribute in that way. And so, friends, let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word from our Lord Jesus. We are so privileged to have these words preserved for us. This sermon on the mount that speaks to us of this radical life of single-minded, wholehearted devotion to the kingdom of God. And now I pray for each one who you have spoken to this morning, for each one whose heart you have pierced, for each one who you have convicted, I pray that that work would continue in Jesus' name that you by your Holy Spirit would continue to speak to us 
to give us a vision for a flourishing and full life, free from anxiety and worry. Please bless us with this great gift of your grace. And please help us as a community, help one another, make all of life all about Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.